Anytime he gets a chance, he will be playing games. It is not an announcement for me to say that on Saturday mornings, I have more enjoyment in coming by the campus to see the flag football than practically any other time. If there's one time that I like people to drive by the campus, it's on Saturday morning. The color and excitement is really something, a wonderful time to take pictures. That is just my own personal testimony. That is not an announcement, Dr. Stead. We are not to make announcements except on Wednesday. So I am not announcing anything. I'm just representing my own interests. And congratulations to our girls for their valiant play last night. They are going to come on like gangbusters, and, and we are proud of them. And we trust their... This message was scheduled for Wednesday, but because of, of the uh, willfulness of a baby in Mrs. Moore's womb, it had to be rescheduled. But ideally, this would come first, and then Russ would be speaking today. And the subject is the Master's Method. And we're thinking, of course, of God's purposes today and uh, how God intends us to implement them. If we're going to do that, we need to know what the nature of the church is. You're going to grapple with this in different ways. There are three fundamental views of the church. One is that it is the kingdom of God on earth. That's the Roman Catholic view and the Greek Orthodox view. Both of those churches believe that they are the kingdom of God. And so it is a very widespread segment of the church's view in terms of Christendom widely. The second view is one that is much closer to our world because it includes so many evangelicals. That is that the church is the elect of all ages. And they base it on the the supposed covenant concept that God entered into a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works. And that, that of course, resulted in disaster. And so God entered into a covenant with his son, Jesus Christ, a covenant of grace. And that resulted in the redemptive plan. And then eventually God entered into a covenant with the believer, which is called the covenant of redemption. Some of the aspects involved are legitimate, but there is no specific scripture that undergirds that view. The view that the, the fundamentalists and Bible-loving people take in our world is that the church is the body of Christ beginning on the day of Pentecost and concluding with the rapture of the church. I'm sorry to say that much of the literature of the day subscribes to the all-time supposed grace covenant view and really is an attack on the premillennial stance that we take. The one great problem that covenant theology faces, as well as the Roman Catholic stance, is that of Israel. 
what in the world do we do with Israel? And in large measure, if you're looking toward a general resurrection and a general judgment, you always have the problem of the Jew. Of course, in the field of prophecy, there are different areas of, of weakness. I remember a Roman Catholic priest asking me one day, he said, will you tell me about eschatology? What is your view of prophecy? He said, the Roman Catholic Church has no view of eschatology. So I'd like to know what, what you people believe. And that was, that was fine with me, but it was interesting that he would so openly say that Romanism has no eschatology. But believing that, believing that it is the kingdom of God on earth, of course, it just goes on and on and on into a sort of a general oblivion. This matter of Israel, of course, needs to be clearly fixed in our minds. And uh, in July of this year, July 1985, the National Geographic has a, an article entitled Searching for the Center. This is Israel. Now, the premillennial view, our understanding is that in this age, because Israel rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been set aside. And God's great purpose today is the church. It's something like the idea that we used to know so well when we rode the trains. And every so often you'd be on a, a cracked train like the Phoebe Snow out of New York. And uh, we were expecting to make time into Buffalo and all of a sudden we'd be shunted off to a siding and we'd sit there and even a minute seems like a half hour and suddenly there'd be another train that would go thundering through. And after that was out of the way, our, our limited would pull onto the track and we would follow down the line as, as planned. Well, that's something of the idea of Israel. Israel was God's mainline purpose. And because of their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they said no to God, remember Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those that are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And then he said, I will not see you henceforth until, and that meant there is to be a future for Israel, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now that's Jesus saying there is a period between the great purposes that God had for Israel in his day and his presentation to them as the king of Israel, just as it was written on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, that was not wrong, but because of their rejection, there is a present purpose of God today, which is the church. But just to illustrate Israel's unbelief today, will you listen very carefully? Malka Piletsky, now 74, 
was a soft-fed schoolgirl when the first teachers came from Russia in the early 1900s. They were socialists, full of the revolutionary spirit, Malka told me at her small cottage not far from Tel Aviv. They said that religion was old-fashioned. We should speak Hebrew, not Yiddish. They made us feel ashamed of our parents. Did you lose your religion? I asked her. I remember that our new biology teacher gave us an essay assignment about plants, she said. And we were to finish it at home. I knew it was a sin to write on the Sabbath, but I wondered if it was true. So I decided to test it myself. Early on Sabbath morning, I took a single sheet of paper and a pencil and walked into the fields where the skies were open and God could see everything. Then I sat down and slowly wrote the words, The Plant. I waited to see what would happen. Would God punish me? But the sky still hung fresh and blue and the wildflowers smelled just as sweet. Malka left really Safed as it is near Galilee, later to become a teacher herself, and she never looked back. Now this. They opened up the doors of the world for us, she said of the young Zionists, but they closed up the heavens forever. Now that was just one phase of Judaism. That is one phase. That's a predominant phase, is the agnosticism, of the Zionists, though the Orthodox party in Israel is growing stronger all the time, at least politically. But here is Israel in unbelief continuing that way, and God's purposes for this day are involved in the church. Either we would speak of the church, which is his body, the entire church, some of which is here on earth, most of which is in heaven, the church or the churches, the local churches. If I were to speak on the body of Christ, I'd probably turn to Ephesians, either chapter 1 or chapter 3 or chapter 5. I counted the other day 24 distinctives of the church, which is the body of Christ, in chapter 1 alone. There is a world of information, Bible truth, about the church, which is the body of Christ, in that epistle. But for the church, which is, or the local churches, the manifestation of that, the organized church, we're going to turn and primarily stay in Acts chapter 2 at the end. Acts chapter 2, a few things that I hope will be helpful as we look at it. Here in verse 41, there are what we may call the initial features. Here is the first concrete historical stance of the church. And by the way, if you want to visualize this through the book of Acts, I visualize it as two as megaphones. You know how a megaphone, you speak through the small end and it goes to the widening end. Well, if you think of that as God's concluding dealings with Israel, then Israel begins as the wide end and diminishes through the book of Acts. And at the end, for the, about the third time, Paul says, I turn to the Gentiles. 
The church, on the other hand, is, as, is in reverse. You have it beginning and enlarging so that it is the predominant factor as you move out into the rest of the, of the New Testament. But here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, you have the initial features of local church membership. Will you look at them very carefully? It says, so then, those who had received his word, that would be the first thing, the first distinctive of local church membership biblically is that of faith in the gospel, faith in Christ, regeneration. I like the, the idea that is in view in the dictionary definitions of the local, of the different churches, the different denominations. And I was greatly relieved, having not been brought up a Baptist, I was greatly relieved to see that their definition of, of a Baptist was simply that this is one who believes in, in the gospel, who, who embraces adult faith prior to baptism. By the way, we're not at all unique in having been a Baptist school and continuing in that same theology, the independent and Bible-believing and independent Baptist stances are simply Bible stances. Our heritage is really not even in the, in the Baptist conventions, but rather in the Bible conference movement of America. But the great singularity of our faith is that we believe the gospel prior to believer's baptism. And that's the way it is here. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. That's, that's ritual baptism. That's water baptism. That's what we call believer's baptism, which is the outward testimony of our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the second initial feature. The third is that of being added together, brought together. And here at the end of the chapter it says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, it it amplifies itself. There's all kinds of expansion here. But I'm only going to take one feature. What are the distinctives of the local church? I'm going to just speak about one of them, and that distinctive is assembly. The distinctive of assembly. That's intimated right there where the Lord added, or there were added, and really added together is the idea. 3,000 souls, the distinctive of assembly. Now, Mr. Moore made a point of reference to the parachurch organizations, and I want to touch on that just to clear the decks a little. Parachurch organizations are those organizations that are endeavoring to fulfill a special ministry in different uh, stratas of Christian testimony. They have a bad habit of encroaching on the specific work of God as it is revealed in the New Testament. When I went to Dallas Seminary many long years ago, Young Life Campaign was just beginning. It had begun after some of the graduates of Dallas Seminary 
had decided that they would start another youth organization. They were not satisfied with Youth for Christ, which had a different role. They wanted more of a teaching ministry, and so they had started Young Life Campaign. And it was a very fine organization, and uh, in due time, as a student, I, I taught in Young Life Campaign clubs. And then one day, the the head of the organization, Jim Rayburn, a charismatic man, a man of exceptional leadership, with one physical tragedy, he was subject to migraine headaches and died at a rather early age, having left quite a work and organization in Young Life Campaign. He called me into his office and he said, I, I just do not see in you the, uh, the interest in Young Life that I'd like to see. And I said, well, Jim, I have had the heritage of a great church. And while I respect what you're doing and I have enjoyed participating in it, it does not fulfill my, my goals. It does not fulfill the purposes that I see fulfilled in the local church, which in that case was the Philpott Tabernacle of Hamilton, Ontario, a great church from which Dr. Louis Talbot later came to the Church of the Open Door. But anyway, that was the idea. We're going to start a parachurch, another organization, and another. And his slogan initially, it changed very quickly, but his slogan initially was, the church has failed. As soon as he ran out of money, he softened that and turned to the churches for funding. That's a very interesting thing that these parachurch organizations do. They are a law unto themselves until they need funding. Now, this is one of the things that has been said about the college. Do you remember Dr. MacArthur saying to you, the, the college is not to be a surrogate or substitute for the church. That's very important. We do claim to be a part of the testimony and a 20th century feature of work, but we are not here a church. That's one of the reasons that you'll not see a baptistry on the campus. One of the reasons that we never have had a communion service on the campus. We believe that that's a singular feature of the local church, the observing and leadership of the ordinances, and that is not for the college. And what we're trying to say is that we fulfill a specific role in this age. This is the way it's done today. You will not read of a college as such in the New Testament. You may see intimations of teaching schools like the School of the Prophets, but this is not a church, and in any sense in which we compete with the churches, we do ourselves damage and violate the clear teaching of God that his instrument, his organized instrument for this age is the local church. Now I'm saying this, that the one distinctive that we're going to talk about right now is that of the disposition and teaching and habit of the church to assemble, to assemble. May I ask you to look again at that text and several others within the immediate text, 
which have to do with them getting together, Christians getting together. It's intimated in verse 41, they were added together, really. Do you notice again in verse 44, those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So there was a disposition, what I'm going to call, first of all, a natural response to assemble. A natural response to assemble. Now, before you drift off, try to discipline your, yourself to ask, what was the immediate background that would have been in the minds of these people? Remember now, we are only, at this point, we are only ten days from the ascension of Jesus Christ. This is the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after his resurrection. And remember, he taught for 40 days. For 40 days, Jesus appeared periodically and he taught. And some of the people gathered here could have been, the initial 120 could have been those who had seen him just 10 days ago. That would have been the group of people, of course, who had believed in him and whom he had seen and to whom he had turned one group of 500 to whom he had shown himself after his resurrection. Now, what about this great company of people who got saved that day? Some of them, of course, have recently been drawn from the temple. They would have been people who were perhaps driven from the temple. Some of those may have been there when Jesus took a scourge and drove them as money changers from the temple. They could have been there that day. Some of them could have recollected him very vividly in that judgmental capacity. And so they're very aware of the authority and the seriousness of the things that are taking place. Some of them, of course, would have had a different experience, perhaps having been subjected to the woes of Matthew 23. What a terrible chapter that is in terms of coming judgment for those who despise the truth of God. There could have been those together that day who were saying, I remember what Jesus of Nazareth said, and God used that background. Some of them, I'm sure many of them, could have been people who had been healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe Malchus was there. Do you remember the slave in the Garden of Gethsemane whose ear had been sliced off by Peter? He could have been there. He could have been aware that he himself had, had felt the, the miracle power of God in Jesus Christ. And here he is. He could have been there that day of Pentecost. He could have heard, he could have had the Spirit touch his heart and responded and been one of those who gathered together. You see, there are all kinds of people with an immediate background. Some of them could have said, I was right there between the Mount of Olives and the city during the triumphal entry. 
I was so close to him that I could have touched the colt on which he was riding. I was so taken up, I, I laid my coat in the pathway on the, on the road. Or I cut down some branches to strew in his pathway. I have that background. I'm aware of this. Some of them could say, I was standing there on the Via Dolorosa. And when Jesus fell under the weight of the cross, I was right there. It's all so vivid in my mind. It isn't that far back. It isn't that far away. Do you see? And now, under the power of the preaching of the gospel and the Spirit of God touching hearts, 3,000 of those Jews, those Jews, now they're all Jews. The first Christians were all Jews. They are brought into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I'm saying, first of all, that it would have been a natural response to assemble. What is a natural response? Actually, if you just go back to the first chapter, there's an interesting one that I think is, is perhaps helpful. Remember, Jesus said, you are not to leave Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Spirit of God not many days hence. Now, don't leave Jerusalem. So he then ascended, and they went back to the city. And what did they do? They began to pray. Jesus hadn't said, you go back to Jerusalem and go to the upper room and get into a prayer meeting. He didn't say that. But as a natural response, that's what they did. They had a great prayer meeting. They also chose Matthias to take Judas's place. But they had a prayer meeting. They were doing that just because that was the thing to do. Why do we assemble, first of all? Why do we gather? Why do, do God's people meet in the churches? Because it is the natural thing to do. For a person who is regenerated of the Holy Spirit, whose whole heart and soul has been yielded to Jesus Christ, why, of course, that's what we do. We gather with our others of like precious faith. Secondly, it was a habitual response. A habitual response. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 5, because a couple of things are taught us here that are of interest to us. A very serious chapter, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, it says this. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now he's simply saying, you're going to have to deal with this issue of sin in the camp. There is incest. It is a wicked, wicked state you're going to have to meet. So... Will you please call a special meeting? No, he didn't say that at all. He said, when you are assembled and I with you. Because that was their habitual process. Now, young people, this is not as crucial to us in our minds. It is as crucial in our lives and should be. But our habit is to become very calloused about it. And one of the most tragic things we can do is succumb to that spirit of insensitivity and grow indifferent
to the fellowship that God has established for his work today, the biblical fellowship. That's a danger. I have interviewed all kinds of faculty members for this college over the last quarter of a century, and, uh, and I think those who sat in on the interviews with me always felt, hey, he is being a little bit persnickety at this point, but I would ask, what church do you attend? And it was amazing to me how much that would expose. And usually, or so many times, regrettably, there would be a very casual spirit. Well, I just happen to be whatever. We'd get letters all the time from people who were not saved, they wanted to teach here. People who were Roman Catholics, they wanted to teach here. Whatever it was, it could be as indiscriminate as from Dan to Beersheba. They wanted to teach here, but they had absolutely no conviction about the singularity of this church-related college. And when a professor says to you, what church do you go to, and you begin to hum and haw, he'll say to himself, uh-huh, there's some big tragic gap in that young person's education or in his life. Because God has designed this fellowship for our blessing. And we just gravitate to it, a Christ-honoring church, a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, is one of the greatest assets that you can have in your whole life. And here the testimony of Scripture is that assembly, to assemble with God's people, is a habitual response. It was a necessary response, too. Necessary then, necessary as it's given to us in the familiar verse of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. Here's the way it reads. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Not forsaking our own assembling together. One of the great scholars of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, is James Moffat, not as reliable as we'd like to have, but he has this comment. Any early Christian who attempted to live like a pious particle, I like that, if you don't have a loyalty to a good, godly, uh, Bible-founded church, you are a pious particle. How do you like that? I wish you'd react a little more. How do you like that? Isn't that a, the limit? How do you, do you feel complimented? You are a pious particle because you are too careless in your behavior to attend church. A church where the Lord is honored and you're a pious particle. I want that to stick. Any early Christian who attempted to live like a pious particle without the support of the community, God, the family of God, ran serious risks in an age when there was no public opinion to support him. You see, you're into a different situation there, as is true in many places around the world. The only people who care are God's people. Everybody else could care less or hate you. You get into trouble in that day and in so many places today, and you're really in trouble because nobody cares. And the support 
students now the support that a local New Testament church can give to you right now is measureless. How many of you, dear young people, are counting on your church back home to support you, to stand with you, to encourage you? Many of you would not be here at all if you did not have the support of a gospel-preaching church. And then one of the real consternations of my life is that you'll turn around and go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and not go near the place. Pastors who are so sensitive, so, so interested in you, and you'll go off and party, and you'll go off and play, and you'll go off in your own selfishness and pay absolutely no attention to the people to whom you turn in need. That's not right. It isn't wise. As I'm saying, it is a necessary support. But I want our assembly, and I want you to know this. The Bible is simply saying you need the church more than you know. You need the pattern. You need that model. You need that image in your mind as to where there is a proper and valued sense of, a, of things that count. The really important continuing things. You didn't need this college until you came into the sphere of post-high school education. You didn't need us. You never thought much about us. And when you leave this college, I hope you'll come back as alumni. I hope that you'll pray for others who follow in your train. But this college will not meet the needs of you and your wife and your children. But the church will. That's where it is. That's why God has designed it, and that's why... It has the distinctive of assembly. I told you that I came from a great gospel-preaching church in Canada. I had two pastors. One was became very influential out here, Dr. Louis Talbot at the Church of the Open Door. And the one who followed him was Dr. William Ward Ayer of the Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. That's where he went to when he left our city. Dr. William Ward Ayer was a great preacher. I don't know that he's still living, but he had a great radio ministry, and he was a power for God in New York City. He told one time, and I happened to hear him, he told of meeting one of his star delinquent members. And the member said to him, Dr. Ayer, what in the world happened at the church last night? I wasn't there. And he said, the trouble with you, my brother, is that you're never there. When anything happens, you're never there. I thought, now that's a good direct thing. It doesn't popularize a pastor, but it, it's what was needed in that case. And I wonder if that isn't the message that we're trying to get across to you this morning, young people. Are you there? Are you being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Are you being sensitive to the teaching of the Word of God? Are you aware of how you're cheating yourself? If your own sense of values is such that you put priority everywhere else but where God puts it, I would hope that in your dear heart right now there is a deep conviction, if not a specific commitment, that you are not going to miss 
God willing, you are not going to miss attendance in the house of God as you have opportunity. And, of course, you have so many golden opportunities. That's going to be fundamental. Now, a word to the breadth of all of this. It is an inclusive response to assemble. It is not just for the spiritual giants on this campus. You've seen a few of those, haven't you? And you've said, boy, I don't know, that's frightening, I better hide. I'm not a spiritual giant, I'm so humble. What you mean is you're trying to cover up your own laziness. But anyway, you say, I'm not so far, I am not going into the ministry. So I don't need to pay too much attention to a church. Dear young people, the work of God is not performed by pastors alone. We wouldn't be anything without dedicated, sacrificial laymen. I don't know that there'd be any campus here at all if we didn't have Henry Vider as a part of our fellowship and family. I don't think there'd be any college here without Ralph Slight. These, these men are named on our buildings. Without the day that Bob Bross and Francis Bross said, we are going to do that for the college and we're going to have to lower our standard of living to do it. There have been a whole succession of people like that and none of those men were preachers. They simply subscribed to the leadership of pastors, of ordained men. But without them, we would have done nothing. I'm just finishing a book by uh, that is written about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and especially his son, Thomas Spurgeon, who was mightily used of God in Australia, New Zealand, and Tasmania. And the testimony there is that one man after another, one layman after another, were the key to the blessing of God and the multiplication of churches in those countries. There was a day when the great metropolitan tabernacle in London was torn from one end to the other as to who was going to be pastor. And a man named Thomas Olney, a layman, a man of God, held that place together, a leading deacon in the church part of the legacy of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he held that together. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't even Spurgeon's brother, James. In fact, he was half of the problem. But it was a layman that did that. Don't you think that if God has not yet invited you into what we call full-time gospel ministry, that there is not just as strategic a place for you today? Some years ago, there was a dear friend of ours who came similarly from Canada, so I got to know him. I didn't know him well up there, although I had acquaintance with him. His name was Ernie Lockerbie, and he had an evangelistic gift, quite a gift. Ernie, it turned out, came from the Delta Tabernacle down the line, or maybe it was Victoria Baptist Church. Anyway, it was down south of where we worshipped at the Philpott Tabernacle in that city. He said, you know, one day... I listened to a great missionary statesman whose name was Dr. Jonathan Goforth. That's a good name, isn't it, to have a Goforth as a missionary statesman. It's like provost in a college like this. That's a good name. Anyway, Dr. Jonathan Goforth at the time, he had sort of succeeded Hudson Taylor 
and represented China, and he was preaching in this church that night, and Ernie heard him and was quite impressed. He was a young bakery salesman, a traveling bakery salesman. So he said, I decided I'd go up and say hello, and I did, and I said, Mr. Goforth, I appreciated your testimony tonight, really enjoyed that preaching. He said, Mr. Goforth looked at him, and he said, young man, what are you going to do for God? And Ernie, knowing all the little idioms, he said, well, Mr. Goforth, I have not been called. You see, he knew just what some of you know, how to get out of everything. And you say, well, I've prayed about it, and so I ought to marry this girl this week, or I ought to buy this car this week, or I ought to jump over the moon next week, whatever it is. I prayed about it, and you know that that little idiom is such that nobody can very well argue with you. So he had this little deal, and he said, Mr. Goforth, I have not been called. And he said the old gentleman looked right square at him and said, Are you living where you would hear him? That's the issue, really. You say, I haven't been called. Count me out. I'm on the basketball team. God doesn't call athletes. Or does he? God may call anyone, but he certainly has a place in the body of Christ for you as a born-again believer, and he has a work for you as a member of the local church. I want you to stand together as, as Mr. Plue comes and leads us in that hymn, A Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Sing it if you believe it. If you don't believe it, if you say, I can count myself out of the church, I can get along without it, God's wisdom stops at my door, then don't sing, because it would be a lie. But the rest of us want to really sing. I want to be for what God is for. Don't you? Amen. Let's stand up and sing it. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church address. We bless thee, our Father, for thy infinite wisdom 
in providing for thy people in every generation according to their need. We have been greatly privileged to have available to us churches that are faithful to the gospel. We pray that we may delight in them, that we may support them, and that we may attend them faithfully. With thankful hearts, we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, and you're dismissed.